Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21 tonight. Genesis chapter 21. You know, I've often thought about the things that our Lord has done in His earthly ministry, uh, but the Bible said that He would go on to do greater things in us. And uh, certainly, man, there is the greatest miracle God's ever performed is the saving of a soul. You know, He turned the world to darkness and He didn't have to move from His throne. And he parted the Red Sea and He didn't have to move from His throne. He stopped the sun in its course. He didn't have to move uh, from His throne. On and on we could go. But when He wanted to save you and me, He had to get up from His throne, robe Himself in flesh, and come to this world and die on the cross of Calvary. There's no greater miracle. It's not just that it's a great miracle. There's no greater miracle than what the Lord did when He saved us. Genesis chapter 21 tonight. You'll recognize the names that we'll come across in this passage of Scripture because I want to preach to you about a woman that we preached about this morning. But I want to preach about a different moment in her life and something that God did. Genesis chapter 21, beginning in verse number 1, the Bible says, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was an hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh, so that all that hear will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck? For I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. The thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. And all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation because he is thy seed. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water was spent in the bottle. And she cast the child under one of the shrubs. And she went and sat her down over against him a good way off, as it were a bow shot, For she said, Let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him and lift up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. And the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him in thine hand, for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. 
And God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here this evening. Lord, I'm, I'm so honored and thankful that you showed up this morning. But Lord, it, it doesn't honor me that you've done that. It honors your word. This is your house and your word and your people and your work. Lord, we'd just love for you to show up and work again tonight like you did this morning. Lord, we know that as we've come in sincerity with our hearts set upon you, that we have every reason to believe your presence in this place. But I pray you'd help us as we approach the word of God to do so with humility and sincerity. You can't do an honest work in a liar, Lord. Help us to be honest tonight that you can do an honest work in us. Lord, I pray that you'd have your will and way this evening in this service May you do deep works in us. Lord, may you gain meaningful, real ground in our life. May this not just be a throwaway moment, but may it be a a transitional moment in our lives where we draw closer unto thee. Lord, I love you. I thank you for loving us. And I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we preached on the first scriptural incident or episode in the life of Hagar. We read about how her as a subject, an object, and a reject of sin had fled into the wilderness with no hope, with no help, with no place, and with no plan. And then the God of glory saw her where she was, spoke to her, and changed her life. We read about how she had gone back home under subjection, no longer under the whip of Sarah, though Sarah certainly held a whip but rather under the hand of God and an obedience unto Him. But now when we come to our passage this evening, we find that some 15 years has passed. And another incident arises in the life of Hagar. There are some similarities. She goes to the wilderness. She finds God beside the well. She hears the voice of God. God reaffirms some promises concerning Ishmael. But we find that there are some marked differences for now, though we haven't really been privy to it. For 15 years, she has lived with a faith in this God. She has no doubt prayed to Him. She has no doubt seen Him work in her life. And she has no doubt trusted Him day by day to preserve her position in the home and in her life. But now all of a sudden, things have changed. And she's gone out looking for the Lord. When Hagar fled into the wilderness from the face of Sarah, God came looking for her. God spoke and made Himself known to her. He commanded her to trust Him and to return home, that He had a great plan for her life and for her child. Do you remember what He said from our text this morning? The angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. Hagar had returned home by faith with a promise from and a personal relationship with God. Her relationship with Sarah evidently had been restored because for 15 years she seems to have lived in relative peace with Sarah and with Abraham. And one day Sarah shares with her the shocking news that she is expecting a child. Sarah is an old woman and no doubt uh, Hagar never believed that there could be a child come along and disrupt her life and disrupt her plan. And then Sarah comes running in the house one day and says, I'm expecting a child. But it's not just any child. 
It's the promised son. Short time later, Hagar, her son Ishmael, are cast out of Abraham's household. What does this mean to Hagar? You know, if you stop, and one of the things I try to do when I study the Bible is remember that people are people. People are people, and people have been people, and ever since people started to people. When you read the Bible, you're reading about the lives of people. And they respond in human ways, and they behave in human ways. And when you think about Hagar and how she would have viewed this moment in Abraham's life and in her life, You think about the promise that God had made back 15 years earlier in Genesis 16. I will multiply thy seed exceedingly that it shall not be numbered for multitude. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that that sounds eerily close to the promise that God had made to Abraham concerning the promised son concerning Isaac. And it seems likely that in that 15 years, Hagar had grown to believe that Ishmael himself had been confirmed as the promised seed. Why else would she stick around for 15 years? Why else would she be surprised when another child comes along? She probably thought to herself, you know, Sarah may be thinking there's another child coming. Abraham may be thinking there's another child coming. But I've heard from God Himself. God said He's going to multiply my seed. God said He's going to make Him a great nation. God said He's going to do all these things. No doubt they are misinformed. And in fact, Ishmael is the promised seed that God has prophesied. She wouldn't really be blamed for thinking that. You think about her coming home and then Abraham's love and affection blooming towards Ishmael. When you study their life, we find that Ishmael was accepted by Abraham. He wasn't treated as as an illegitimate son. He wasn't treated as someone cast aside. Abraham accepted Ishmael. Not only was he uh, accepted by Abraham, he was circumcised by Abraham. Abraham's circumcision being a, a, a signal and a sign of the covenant relationship between Abraham and and between God and Abraham, the Bible says, whenever God gave him the sign of circumcision, took Ishmael and circumcised. It seems when we study our Bible that even Abraham to some degree believed this way because it seems like he was chosen by Abraham. Do you remember in chapter 17, the Lord speaks to Abraham and says, Ishmael is not the promised seed, but instead Isaac is the promised seed. And how does Abraham respond? He says, oh, that Ishmael might live before them. Evidently, Abraham had even come to terms with the idea that Ishmael might be the chosen one. And when we read in our text here tonight, it becomes apparent that Ishmael was beloved by Abraham. Whenever God tells Abraham to cast out the bondwoman and her son, Abraham is deeply grieved at the thought of his child wandering out in the wilderness. No doubt all this together... It seems probable that that Hagar would have thought to herself, you know, they think there's another child, but I know better. I know it's Ishmael. God spoke to me. God's got a plan. God's doing a work. And then one day, Abraham comes to her, puts a bottle of water and a loaf of bread on her shoulder, pushes her child into her arms and says, go. You're not a part of this house anymore. It seemed as though everything was going a certain direction, but now it seemed as though God's promise had failed and that God's plan had fallen apart. How could she make sense of all this? It's interesting what she does. Hagar, in her despair, goes out and wanders in the wilderness. wonder what she was doing wandering in the wilderness. 
I believe this, and you're welcome to disagree with me if you've not yet been wrong today. It might be a good opportunity. Hagar, in despair, goes out searching for the God that had spoken to her some 15 years earlier. In fact, I'd say it this way. She goes out to find him that had found her. I'm going to preach to you tonight on that thought. Finding him that found me. Listen, I bless the Lord for the day that the Lord found me. But can I be honest with you? There are days in my Christian walk, and no doubt if you live for the Lord, there are days in your Christian walk, and you know that the express and and, and explicit presence of God is there in your life. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. But it just seems like everything is falling apart, and you look around and ask this timeless question, where's God in all this? Hagar's left wondering, if God loves her, where is he at? If God's not forsaken her, where is he at? If God's got a plan for her life, where is he at? And then all of a sudden, out in the wilderness, wouldn't you know it, God comes walking by again and comforts the heart of Hagar. I want you to notice three thoughts tonight, and then we'll be done. Here in this passage, the first thing we see is evidently Hagar questioning the plan of God. The Bible in the first opening verses of this chapter, it's not really about Hagar. In fact, Hagar's name doesn't really arrive until verse number 9. Instead, the opening passages of this chapter of the Word of God are all about Sarah. It's about the excited news when she comes and, and tells Abraham that I'm with child. God's done it. God's performed a miracle. God's on time and God's faithful. He told us we were going to have a child and certainly we are going to have a child. Now Abraham no doubt was beside himself. She called or he called the name of the child. Isaac means laughter and it was God's sort of way of indicting Sarah for her unbelief while also uh, reaffirming to her his faithful because she had laughed at God when God said, I'm going to give you a child. God says, I'm going to remind you every time you have to call His name about laughing at me. Hey, by the way, that's good reason not laugh at God. Amen. He may give you a child that you need Him every time you've got to scream that child's name out. Amen. And so... So God had had been doing a work in, in Sarah's life and in Abraham's life. But can I remind you, though her name does not appear until verse number 9, that Hagar, she is present for every moment of this. She is present when the exciting news comes. She is present when the rejoicing over God's goodness is taking place. She is present when the child is born into the home. She is present when he's christened. She is present when he's circumcised. She is present when they're rejoicing in the Lord. And I wonder what she was thinking the whole time. Remember that to her, the birth of this child is a disconcerting reality. It flies directly in the face of what she understood to be the plan of God for her life and for her child. And here's what we find. We find in our text that God's plan seems distracted. Hagar's expecting God to be do something in her life, but God's not doing anything in her life. To our knowledge, we don't really find anything meaningful transpiring between chapter 16 and chapter 21 concerning her. And the Bible had already given prophecy that Ishmael would be a wild man. And it seems apparent from our text, the word used in verse number 9 about mocking, it implies more than just poking fun at. It means that he was assaulting and he was bullying and he was harassing the child. Uh, Ishmael would have no doubt been about 15 years old at this time. And it's apparent already that he 
is a youth out of control and out of hand. And here is Hagar. She's wrestling and struggling with this boy here. She's beginning to wonder what God's plan is for him. And then here over in the corner is Sarah and Abraham rejoicing in the goodness of what God has done. And you know, jealousy got no place in the life of a believer. But don't you know, she had to look over and say, God, why won't you do in my family what you're doing in that family? Oftentimes, you know, we put God on a time scale. We don't say it out loud. We don't write it down. We don't whisper it where people can hear. Sometimes we begin to look at what God's doing and we can grow to resent what God's doing in someone else's life. Not because we truly resent them, but because we feel deeply a need in our own life. God started doing a work elsewhere. And these questions had to cross her mind. Had God given up on her and Ishmael? If God's word was true, then why was God blessing Sarah instead of blessing her? I would say this, God's plan seems distracted in our text. Look with me at verse number 8. The Bible says this, And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had born unto Abraham, mocking. Now, I already said a moment ago, what is implied by this phrase, mocking, is more than just teasing. It is more than just sort of brotherly ribbing. It implies a certain hostility and a certain violence uh, that seem to be native in the, in the, in the nature and in the attitude and in the disposition of Ishmael. So much so that when Sarah sees it, she's bothered by it. She's not just bothered at the idea that her boy is getting picked on, but she is fearful for his well-being. She is resentful of Hagar's presence. And all of a sudden, something has cropped up that seems to be a direct conflict between the plan of God and between what God is doing. You know, oftentimes we look at the will of God in our life, and uh, it's not always a smooth, bumpless road between where God starts us and where God brings us. And I will tell you that in your life, if you're expecting a smooth road, uh, it probably won't be a very long one. If you put the parameters on God that you're unwilling to trust Him in a sharp curve, He'll probably just let you sit in the parking lot the whole time. We've got to be willing to trust God to endure uh, troubling and disconcerting circumstances. And, and how dare us put on God parameters to say, Now, Lord, I'll trust you, but only if it's easy. I'll trust you, but only if there's no problems. Lord, I'll trust you, but only if I can understand you. Here in this text, it seems like all of a sudden something showed up that is in direct contradiction to what God was doing. This wasn't just a conflict between Ishmael and Isaac. This was, it seemed, a conflict between what God had said and what God was doing. She looks at this precious little baby boy, Isaac, and he seems to have a calm and temperate disposition. And then she looks at her teenager, Ishmael, and he's a wild man, and his hand is against every man. And she's beginning to question in herself, why is it that God's plan doesn't seem to be going the way I expect it to go? I will tell you many times in your life, you're going to expect God to zig and He's going to zag. 
Many times in your life, you're going to have an ideal of what the plan of God looks like. And I, listen, I'm not the voice of experience by any measure, but I've been around enough and seen people's lives enough to tell you this. Listen, you don't want your plan. You want God's plan. Sometimes it can be a wild roller coaster of a ride, but I promise you that whenever it pulls to a stop, he will always be in a better place than if you had been the one planning the course. Listen, I mean, God's plan, it seemed distracted. Why is God blessing them and not blessing me? It seemed disrupted. Why, if God is going to do this work in Ishmael's life, then why is this problem arising? And and it seems insurmountable. But then notice with me verse 10. Wherefore, she said unto Abraham, Sarah said this, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. Abraham spends an agonizing night getting a hold of God. And we could look at it and we could look at his fatherly tender love towards Ishmael, his crisis of faith and his cry of prayer and angst. But I think if we want to see it from Hagar's point of view, we just need to jump down to verse 14 and we'll see where Abraham landed. Abraham rose up early in the morning, took bread and a bottle of water and gave it unto Hagar, put it on her shoulder and the child and sent her away. For all that Abraham said, the place that it landed is Abraham said, yes, Sarah, you're right. She's going to have to go. Now, we understand studying New Testament truth that this bore upon much more than just what was happening in this little family in the land of Canaan, that this was a picture of God uh, putting away the Old Testament covenant and replacing it with the New Testament covenant of grace. But can I say this? Probably none of that meant much to Hagar, even if she had known it, which she didn't. All she knew is, God has a plan for my life. It involves me being in this home. It involves Ishmael growing and being blessed and being favored. It involves him being enlarged in the place of his brethren. It involves him being elevated and exalted amongst them. It involves all these things. And to her mind, it involves him being the promised seed and the promised son. It involves all these things that God has said and done. And then in a moment, it seems to evaporate. God's plan didn't just seem disrupted and distracted. It seemed destroyed. God's plan seemed to fall apart. But as we'll see when we go a little further in truth, only her plan had fallen apart. God's plan was still intact. You know, part of the problem I've got with the prosperity gospel movement, I don't, listen, I want God to bless people. I want God to heal people and I want God to to enrich people. I do. I'm for it. I ain't against it. And listen, I mean, it was a miracle 20 years ago, but inflation being what it is, God's really showing off when he pays your bills. Amen. I'm for all those things. But my problem with the prosperity gospel movement is it presumes to speak for God and put words in God's mouth that God himself never said. When we read this passage of Scripture, God had spoken a word of promise to Hagar. But it seems from our text, she had heard things God hadn't said. And it seems she had assumed things God never implied. And now she finds herself in the troubling and disturbing situation 
of believing that God's plan has fallen all to pieces. And listen, I promise you, if you study closely His Word, you'll find that not a single promise of His ever has or ever will fail. And you might look at it and say, well, God's failed me. No, God ain't failed you. Your expectations of God may have failed you. Your idea of what God should do may have failed you. Your hopes and dreams of what you wanted for your life may have failed you. But I promise you, God has not failed you for God will never fail you and Hagar though she doesn't understand though she can't figure it out though she can't make sense out of it she finds herself in a place where she has to decide what she's going to do so here's what she does we find her questioning the plan of God but in verse 14 we find her seeking the presence of God and I'll tell you this Hagar was human she had problems flaws failures I don't think she was as nefarious a character as some want to make her out to be but I will say this, she did something right. When she couldn't find God, she went looking for Him. Most of us would just sit down and pout. <laughs> but she goes looking for Him. The Bible says this, she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. What did it look like, her seeking of the presence of God? Well, I know, I know, preacher, what it looked like. She'd go to church. She didn't have no church to go to. Why, she'd get alone in the prayer closet and she would call out to the Lord. Well, that'd been a good thing, but that's not what she did. Well, preacher, I know what seeking the presence of God looks like. She would have went and found godly counsel and asked them what to do, but she had no one that she could call on. In fact, we would say this, that her seeking the presence of God, uh, she doesn't look like a, like a bastion of wisdom. She looks like a mess. But you know, often when we seek God's presence, we're in a mess. What kind of shape was she in? Well, notice, number one, her sense was disoriented. Verse 14 says this, She departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. We find her here, and you know what she's doing? She's wandering in the desert. You know, there are going to be times in your life you're going to wander through a spiritual desert. Desert is a dry place. It is a dead place. And it is a dangerous place. Wilderness is a place that is inhospitable and is hostile to all travelers therein. There's going to be times in your life, particularly when it seems like God's plan has fallen apart, that you're going to feel like you find yourself wandering in dry places and finding no satisfaction and finding no peace. She's wandering in the desert. But I began to ask this question. You know, the Bible, no single word of your King James Bible is there by accident. It ain't there because some theologian thought it'd be good for it to be there And it ain't that it should be there, but they decided to shorten it up, so they took it out. I believe God has preserved His Word for the English-speaking people, inspired and inerrantly in the King James Bible. And so everything in your Bible, it's not just there correctly, but it's there deliberately. The Bible tells us this, she departed and she wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. If you were to get a map out and look at it, what you'd find is this, Beersheba, while not the wilderness of shore, is headed towards the wilderness of shore. In other words, if we were to give any sense to her purpose in travel here, it would not be that she was heading back to Egypt as she was in chapter 16. For if that was the case, she would not be wandering. She would be traveling. But she has gone towards the south in that same direction. She's gone to a place called Beersheba, which is a place where a well would be found. The name means a well of seven oaths. She has gone, and here's what she's doing. She's trying to go back to the last place she heard God and see if she can hear from Him again. She's wandering in the desert, but here's what she was really doing. She was searching for the divine voice of God. Preacher, I don't know what to do, man. It's all fell apart. 
Well, just go out looking for him and sit down and try to listen for his voice. I don't mean that in some hippy-dippy spiritualist way. I mean, get in your Bible and listen for his voice. I mean, get under sound preaching and listen for his voice. I mean, get in, get in the prayer closet and pray to him and listen for his voice. And start trying to hear from him. We criticize Hagar a lot and a lot of people surely do. But in this passage, she, this is good sin she's displaying. She don't know where to go, but she knows that if she can just get out in the wilderness and get lost enough, God loves her enough sure that he'll come looking for her. I think sometimes, man, when everything falls apart, we are so prideful in focusing on trying to maintain our bearings and ensure that we have control over the situation. Hey, there's some places you've got to get lost to find. I've hunted in some of them. Somebody say amen to that. <laughs> there are some places you've got to get lost to find. And, and she don't know where to go, but she knows that if she gets lost, God who loves her will come looking for her. Hey, maybe what you ought to do is throw that pride away and admit to God that you're lost and don't know where to go, that you ain't got no help and you ain't got no plan and you don't know what to do in your life and you might find that God will speak through the fog to you. I see that her sense was disoriented. But then verse 15, I see her strength was depleted. The Bible says this, the water was spent in the bottle. It means they drank everything in the bottle there was. There wasn't anything left. We said this morning, water in the Bible is fascinating. Often when it is used to wash, it is a picture of the Word of God. And often when it is used in consumption to drink, it is a picture of the Spirit of God. And though this morning we saw her by the fountain and in a place where one might either wash or uh, replenish themselves here, it's apparent what the purpose of this bottle is. It's water to drink. In other words, it reminds me that it's a picture of the work and presence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. Now, the Holy Spirit is the fountain. And the fountain ain't run dry. But she tried to carry enough in her bottle to get her through the dry places and now she's found the bottle is spent. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes, and us preachers, we talk about preventative medicine when we preach. But can I tell you, and there's some truth to that, God can give us wisdom that we'll need for a later date. I'm not opposed to that. I think that is certainly true. But can I say that, that when you're in the wilderness, the bottle ain't going to do, the fountain's going to have to do. It ain't enough just to say, well, now, preacher, God once did a work. Hey, God once had done a work in her life here. Fifteen years ago, God had spoke and she had drank of the fountain. But now she's been cast out and she's wandered with the bottle. In other words, it reminds us of the concept of living off old strength and off old interactions. And I will tell you, if you're in the midst of angst, cast away your pride and drink of the fountain, drink of the well. Don't think that in your pride it's enough for you to go in the energies of your own strength. You need the Lord. I need the Lord. I need Him when I... Listen, oh, I need Him when it's good, and I sure enough need Him when it's bad. She, her strength is depleted. Preacher, if I can just be stronger. No, you've got it wrong. You need to get weaker. Preacher, if I was just strong enough to handle what I'm going through. No, ain't none of us strong enough to handle what we're going through. If we were, hey, God wouldn't bless it. God would resent it. He would weaken our strength. That's what the psalmist said. He weakened my strength in the way. 
Preacher, God can't do no by nothing with anybody as weak as I am. No, it's not the weak he can't work with. It's the strong he can't work with. Paul learned this, that, that when he was weak, God was strong and that he would therefore glorify God and praise him and rejoice in his infirmity, that the power of Christ would rest upon him. I'm saying this, it's not ideal that her strength was depleted, but it was probably necessary that her strength was depleted. If she had had water in the bottle, she would have kept wandering. But because there was no water left, there was no sense in wandering any longer. And so she sat still long enough for God to speak to her. You know, sometimes that's what we need in our life. We've got to sit still long enough for God to speak to us. That's one of the, I think, ill effects of the rapid society we live in. We've got enough distractions to never have to hear God's voice. But once the strength is gone, once the water is gone, once the bottle is empty... She just simply sits down. Verse 15, her sense was disoriented. Her strength was depleted. I want you to notice what she did. The Bible says in verse 15, she cast the child under one of the shrubs. I don't understand everything about it. Possibly it's that he, too weary and too weak to walk, was being carried by his mother who simply through sheer force of will was carrying him a little further in the wilderness. I don't know. He's a, he's a young man at this point. He's 15 years old. Here's what I do know is that this mother's heart begins to break and she begins to imagine the life leaving his body and she says, I, I just can't do it. I can't watch him die. And she takes him and she casts him under one of the shrubs. And then the Bible says she goes off a distance. She said, let me not see the death of the child. But I want you to think for a moment about what that meant to her when she threw that boy down. Remember who Ishmael had been 15 years earlier. He had been the very token of God's promise and of God's plan. He had been the reason she had hoped all these long years. And how significant is it that she now takes this child who is the token of God's promise, who is the symbol of God's plan, in whom all of God's promises are vested, and she says, it's all fell apart. There's no purpose anymore. And she takes the child and says, I'm going to pitch him under the shrubs and just let him die there. There's no future anymore. I would say this, that in discarding the son, she was discarding her hope. She was saying, it's, it's over. It's over. God's got no plan anymore. He had a plan, but man's messed it up, or he's messed it up, or I've messed it up. I don't know and don't care anymore. I just know that what God had planned can't happen now, and I've given up on any future that I might have had. I see her son was discarded, but then I see her spirit was defeated. Verse 16, she went and sat her down over against him a good way off, as it were a bow shot. For she said, let me not see the death of the child. She sat over against him and lift up her voice and wept. She does not pray. She does not trust. She does not even question anymore. She just sits there in a sort of a strange, morbid death watch. And just waits for her child's voice to die down to silence and for the life to leave his body. You could not find a more defeated person than Hagar in Genesis 21:16. She has given up utterly on God caring about her, on God loving her, on God having a plan for her. She is as low as a human being can possibly be. She has not even the force of will to get up and go minister to her dying child. She is as low as a person could possibly be. And then... <laughs> 
in verse 17, God heard the voice of the lad. We're going to get on and preach it here in a second. But you might say, preacher, you don't understand, man. This thing, it's both fatal and final. There's no coming back. God's plans fell apart. I, I don't even have the strength to watch it all burn anymore. There's an emptiness in my heart and my hope is destroyed and shattered into a million pieces. Well, good. You're probably right about to the place that God needs you to be so that He can show up. (laughs) He could have showed up when she was wandering, but He didn't. He could have showed up when the bottle was getting empty, but He didn't. He could have showed up when the child was thrown under the shrub, but He didn't. He showed up when she finally gave up and said, I'm done, I have no more strength to operate in. And God said, good, now my strength can begin to work. (laughs) I see her seeking the presence of God. But in verse 17, I see her finding the peace of God. And it took that bankruptcy, that barrenness, that brokenness for God to begin to work. I want you to notice five things God did for. Then we'll have an introduction and then we'll be... Yes, sir. I'm glad you're with me. Fred said y'all are with me. Amen. Verse 17, the Bible said this. God heard the voice of the lad... The angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. How did she find the peace of God? Or what did she find peace in? What did God want to show her that would give her peace in her life? I would say, number one, he showed her that her problem was heard. Did you hear what I just said? Her problem was heard. I didn't say her prayer was heard. God didn't hear her prayer. You know why? Because she didn't pray. She didn't have the strength or didn't have the faith, whatever it might have been, to utter a prayer. The Bible says she lifted up her voice and wept in verse 16, but nowhere do we find her praying. I believe if she had prayed, God would have heard her prayer. But when she didn't even have faith enough to pray, God didn't hear her prayer, but God heard her problem. You say, preacher, I don't even have the hope or the strength to call on Him. Can I say this? You ought to call on Him. You need to pray to Him. There's strength and help in prayer. But can I say this? He don't need you to pray to inform you about, inform Him about your problems. Hey, our Heavenly Father already knows what you have need of before you even ask. Our prayer is an exercise in faith. It's not an exercise in education. God already knows what you're going through. He knows what you're experiencing. And you say, preacher, I don't know if I'll pray it the right way. You ain't never prayed anything the right way. Hey, listen, you ain't never prayed a prayer so beautiful that God said, I ought to sit there and listen to that. God's always listened to your prayers out of mercy and out of grace and out of faithfulness. And you say, preacher, I don't even have strength enough to pray. Well, he hears your problem even when he can't hear your prayer. He heard the voice of the lad and I like what he asked. You remember he asked her something different in chapter 16. In chapter 16, he said, whence camest thou and whither goest thou? But here he just simply asked this, what aileth thee, Hagar? See, the problem isn't where she's at. The problem is, the problem is not her location. The problem is her condition. The problem is not, it, it, it is not that she is lost in the sense of a sinner being, being lost without God. She is not a pagan. The problem is not her paganism in this passage. The problem is her perspective. She's a believer in God, but she's got her eyes off of God and got her eyes on the problem. God says, Hagar, I already know I'm looking at your problem. It's not too big for me to fix. 
He asked her, what aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. <laughs> Say, preacher, God don't know how far gone my problem is. Yeah, he knows where it is. He knows where it is. He, he knows where it is. He could fix it if he wanted to. He's able and he loves you. So if he's not, it's not because he's incompetent, but it's because he's providential. Her problem was heard. And then I like verse 18. Here's what God says. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him in thine hand. For I will make him a great nation. You threw your son down when you thought there was no hope. Now that I've spoken to you, you have hope. So pick him back up. In other words, her problem was heard, but her hope was restored. God says to Hagar, quit acting like I'm dead, Hagar. Quit acting like my plans fell apart, Hagar. Go pick your child up, Hagar. All the promises I still made, they've not fallen to the ground and they've not failed. That child has value. That child has worth. That child is still the the portrait and picture of my promises. Hey, don't lose hope, Hagar. I've not given up and I've not failed. Go pick the child up. I'm going to make him a great nation. Probably from God's perspective, he thought, why are you letting him lay up under that bush and die? I'm going to make him a great nation, Hagar. And often in our life, we say, well, God, everything's just, it's broken irreparably. Our wound is incurable. There's no way. And God says, why are you? I I love, you know, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, when the Lord Jesus uh, heals the daughter of a ruler of the Jews. And the Bible says that uh, whenever he goes in the house, that they're already having the funeral. She's dead. They're already having the funeral. And he goes in, and this is this is what he says. He says, why ye make, make ye this great ado? The child is not dead, but sleepeth. He walks in and says, why are you all having a funeral? She ain't dead. And the Bible says they laughed him to scorn till he put everyone out, raised her from the dead, <laughs> and came walking out with her arm in arm. And listen, you might look at it and you might say, Preacher, you don't understand. It's already dead. It's already done. You might in your angst be weeping and screaming and crying and thrashing the heavens. God's looking down saying, What are you getting so tore up about? I'm not done yet. What make you this great ado? I see her hope was restored. I like verse 19. The Bible says this, And God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. Not only was her problem heard and her hope was restored, but her eyes were open. It's interesting to me. She's dying of thirst while standing by the well. Could it be possible for a person to die of thirst while standing by the well? It's interesting. I, I don't know. You know, commentators, they just they make a living saying things. So you take this with a grain of salt. But commentators had wondered, you know, the name Beersheba. The oath of uh, the the well of seven oaths. This well does not actually get this name until afterwards in this chapter. Abraham had dug this well. It's interesting to note that the well that saved her life was dug by the man that she probably hated more than anyone at this time in her life. God works in strange ways. It might be the very thing that the, the very person that you think is your greatest enemy, God is using to preserve and strengthen and nourish you in ways you couldn't imagine. He had dug this well, but the Bible says that the Philistines had come and they had robbed this well away. They had taken this well away. 
And Abraham will go on to meet with Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, and he will go, go on to, to agree that this well was dug by him, and they will, they will slay seven lambs as a, an oath and a testimony, a memorial to the fact that this well belonged to Abraham and did not belong to the Philistines, and that's when they'll name it Beersheba, or the well of seven. Sheba being the Hebrew word for seven, and, and it implies the place of seven lambs or of seven oaths that were made. Here's what's interesting. Some commentators have speculated that the Philistines, having stolen this uh, well away, might have tried to conceal it and cover it up. In fact, they might have done any number of things to do that. One of the things they might have done is they might have cut down some shrubs and came and covered that well in those shrubs so that no one would be able to find it. And then one day here comes Hagar and takes her son throws them up under a shrub tree. It's possible you believe this as you wish, but I think there's a real possibility that the reason God opened her eyes is she went back to pick that boy up off the ground. When she in faith allowed her hope to be restored, she found out that the very place she had thrown her problem down was the very place where God had a well for her. Hey, listen... I don't know. I don't know, but it preaches good. Amen. What I do know is this. I do know that she was getting ready to die of thirst, standing by the very well that she needed to drink out of. But her eyes had to be seen, had to be opened so that she could see. Can I remind you of what John chapter number 4 says? We read it this morning. Whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. No born-again believer has a right to thirst to death. You don't have a right to thirst to death. You've got a well within you in the person of the Holy Spirit. But you know, if you're too stubborn to drink of that well, you're too stubborn to in humility admit the bottle's empty. If you're too prideful to admit that you got no hope and got no help, if you're too stubborn-willed to go to the Lord and to admit your weakness and to ask for strength and to ask for help, then, oh, yes, friend, you can die right there by the well. But it's not the will of God. So God opened her eyes. Her eyes were open, and then her bottle was filled. She went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad to drink. And remember what we said earlier, the bottle empty was a picture of her strength depleted. So what is the bottle full? Well, it's a picture of her strength restored. She found that when she found the well, she found everything she needed. By the way, it's interesting. She ran out of water, but she didn't run out of bread. The bread was still good, but she had ran out of water. You know who the bread of life is, don't you? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the bread don't run out. (laughs) But if we won't drink of the well, we might get a little thirsty. In other words, we don't lose our salvation. And we never find that He's not enough. He's the bread of life, and we eat of Him and are satisfied And even the water He gives us in the working of the Holy Spirit in our life is always enough. But if we refuse to drink of the well, we can indeed get thirsty. And she didn't need more bread. The bread was enough. But she sure enough did need to take a drink of that well. You never lose your salvation. And you never find your salvation is insufficient because God, Christ, is our sufficiency. But you will find that if you try to operate in your own strength and in your own ability, you will find weakness there. You will find failure there. You will find despair there. But if you'll quit operating under your own strength, confess your own weakness, and take a drink of the well that lives within you in the person of the Holy Spirit, you don't need to get re-saved, but you might need to 
fill your bottle up again. You might need to get a little more strength and you might get weary in the journey and weary in the way, but you'll find that he's enough. I see her bottle was filled and then I see God's promise was kept. Verse 20 says this, God was with the lad. God was with the lad. You make of that what you want. God was with the lad. The preacher, he was a Gentile, I know, but God was with the lad. Preacher, he was an Ishmaelite. In fact, he wasn't just an Ishmaelite. He was the Ishmael of the Ishmaelites. I know. God was with the lad. Preacher, he wanted the promised seed or the promised son. Yeah, I know, but God was with the lad. And the Bible says he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran. His mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. You know what we find when we come to the end of this passage? We find that God, every promise he made, he kept. God multiplied his seed. God made him a great nation. God was with him and blessed him and prospered him. And he dwelt in the wilderness. The Bible said he'd be a wild man, that his hand would be against his neighbor. See, Ishmael had thought him being a wild man would mean he would have a wild disposition. Really what God meant when he said he was a wild man is he would live out in the wilderness. That he wouldn't dwell in the populated areas, but he would be isolated and solitary. And his people would find themselves separate and, and, and apart from all the other people's. And that he would dwell in the midst, in the presence of his brethren. Everything that God said he would do, he did. It's interesting when you open this passage because in verse number 2, the Bible says Sarah conceived and bare a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. It says in verse 1, the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. Here's Hagar saying, why is God keeping his promises to Sarah but not keeping his promises to me? When you come to the end of the chapter, you find that God had kept not only his promises to Sarah, but God had kept his promises to Hagar. How'd she find peace in the Lord? Well, she realized God did know where she was. God had heard her. God still had a plan for her life. Arise, lift up the lad. I will make him a great nation. God opened her eyes so that she could see that the resources she needed were right under her feet the whole time. Say, preacher, maybe if I buy that new book that that guru put out, no, it hadn't helped them, it won't help you. But you'll find that the water's still clean and cool in the well. And you'll find it still satisfies. Her bottle was filled, her strength was restored. But above it all, we find God's plan had not fallen apart. Her idea of God's plan was shot to pieces. But God's plan had not fallen apart. I don't understand everything you're going through, but I know that God does. And I know that Him knowing is enough if we'll cast our strength and our hope upon Him. Let's bow together tonight as musician plays. Miss Karen or Miss Connie, Connie, come play for us. I want to give you an opportunity if the Lord spoke to your heart about something. I prepared this message several days ago. It's been on my heart. How often do we in our life find that our idea of what God ought to be doing does not come to reality. If what we think God ought to do, God doesn't do. And we're left in a crisis moment where we'll either cling to our concept of what God ought to do and curse who God is, or we'll cast in humility all that away and say, Lord, I just want your plan and your will for my life. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.